Hello and welcome to Velocity with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Shelly Ware is today's guest. I love this chat. I'm not going to bang on too much about it because you're about to hear it, but what a great guest. What an interesting and funny and intelligent and dynamic and insightful person Shelly Ware is, and it was a great pleasure to have her on the show. Uh, If you enjoy this show, if you enjoy any of the episodes of Velocity and you would like to support the podcast, the best way to do that is go to Patreon, patreon.com slash Velocity. You can sign up there for as little as US dollar per month. And uh, that means that you get not only the regular episode a day early and ad free, but if we get to a regular contribution of 5,000 per month, that's our aim. That's our stretch goal, I guess. Uh, We will put out two episodes per week. One will be a brand new episode like today's and one will be a catch-up episode with a previous guest like the one that came out last week with Corey Tutt, the founder of Deadly Science. A couple of audio issues with that, but it is still very, very listenable. So I highly recommend if you have not caught Corey Tut's catch-up episode yet, then uh, go and have a listen to that one as well. Um, We're hovering around 4,900, so thank you to everybody who has signed up to the Patreon, who, who uh, supports it every... We are indie media. This is an independent podcast. It is not aligned to any of the major networks or anything like that. So for me to pay podcast, Mike and James Fosdyke for doing all the original artwork and everything that goes into these episodes, um, I could not do that without you guys contributing to and supporting the show. So to everybody who does, to everybody who shares it, to everybody who rates it, to everybody who writes a review of it, to everybody who just tells somebody that they liked an episode or even the guests who have been on who have promoted it themselves um then i just appreciate all of that because this show would not exist without that support uh it doesn't make me any money personally but the fact that it you know is able to create you know employment for all those people an opportunity for all those people and an opportunity for you guys to hear it uh is enough look I'm not going to lie to you. I'd love if it also made me some money, but at the moment it doesn't, but we cover our costs and that is the most important thing. So to do that, your contributions to patreon.com slash philosophy. That's the place to sign up. And yes, you can do it for as little as one US dollar per month. So if you like the show, do that. Uh, Another way that you can support me is come and see me live. If I'm coming to a place near you, I am dipping my toe back into the world of stand-up comedy. This week, this weekend, in fact, I'll be in Canberra. On Friday night, uh, March the 5th, I'll be doing an encore performance of my Will Legal show, which is a show all about being arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga. Uh, One night only, return performance. This will be the last time that you'll be able to see this show in Canberra. So if you missed it the first time around or you enjoyed it so much the first time around, you'd like to see it again, then you can do that this Friday night. And then on Saturday night, in the same venue, I'll be doing my completely improvised stand-up show, What You Talking About, Will. So Friday night, we'll leave. Saturday night, what you're talking about, Will. There is a discount deal uh, for tickets if you want to buy tickets to both shows. Make sure that you go to the link and get the little discount for buying uh, tickets to both of those shows or come to one or the other. Uh, they have just increased the capacity. I think it's gone from, you know, 55% to 65%, but uh, under the new COVID regulations, but there are some more tickets available. So please come along, laugh out loud and uh, make up for the empty seats uh, next to you. It's going to be a bit of a weird experience. I have, uh, I did my first proper stand-up gig uh, last night uh, the night before I'm recording this which is an outdoor gig in Sydney thank you to everybody who came along and saw that show it was a bit weird to be honest like not the show itself just being back up there and uh, you know doing it in this new environment adjusting to everything I, I must admit I did actually feel a little rusty so 
going to spend a bit of time this week uh, really getting ready for Friday night and Saturday night in Canberra. Then the weekend after that, I'll be back at the Brunswick Picture House in the Brunswick Heads, northern New South Wales, doing the final night of this run of What You're Talking About, Will. So uh, March 13, Saturday night, Brunswick Picture House, uh, my final What You're Talking About, Will show there for a while uh, while they do some reserva- uh, reservations, renovations, <laughs> no reservations. Uh, and then, of course, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, which is not that international this year. It's mostly a local comedy festival. I'll be doing an encore performance of Legal there as well. Two weeks at the Arts Centre. Limited tickets because of COVID. Limited amount of shows. I'm only doing two weeks. So if you want to come and see Legal in Melbourne, then I highly recommend you buy some tickets to come along to the Arts Centre to watch that. Hopefully I'll get to do some more shows, uh, you know, later in the year in other places. But at the moment... I'm just trying to do it in the most sensible and COVID-safe way that I can, uh, particularly around travel and making sure that everybody comes out to support the shows. It's also in a safe environment. So that's all I have at the moment. But if you're in those places and you would like to you know, support it, what it is that I do, please buy a ticket to the show and come along. All right. Uh, that's it. That's all the plugs for now. Thank you again to everybody who uh, listens to this show. Uh, and supports this show. I truly appreciate it, and I think you're really going to dig this episode with Shelley Ware. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and this is how the show starts. It's pretty simple. I ask the guests who they are. So, who are you? Shelley Ware. Just Shelley Ware. Just Shelley Ware. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Shelley Ware. It is very nice to have you on the show. You are somebody uh, who I've wanted to have on for a very long time, so I'm glad that this is happening. For people who don't know who Shelley Ware is, well, I guess that's why they've tuned into this episode of Philosophy, (laughs) to find out who Shelley Ware is. And I have a conceit to this show, which is I ask people if they have a philosophy of some kind, you know, whether it be a motto or a life philosophy, a love philosophy, a work philosophy. Um, so let's start with that as we get to know you. Do you have one? Well, I'm a big believer that your philosophy is just who you are as a person. Like, you know, we can say lots of things, and but we can also forget about them. You know, I think society is guilty of that a lot. So I pride myself on living a philosophy and then hearing it back in the words of others. So um, it's great to hear people say to me that I treat people, uh, everybody equally. So it doesn't matter who they are, you know, if like on set, say on television, if it's the cameraman to the person who's bringing the food to the superstar of the show, they said, we just love that I treat everyone the same. So to hear those words back, that's, that's the philosophy that I am, that you treat everybody the way that you'd like to be treated. So that's how I believe um, philosophies work, because I think we're guilty too many times of saying, oh, this is what I believe, and then not living it. So I live, living is part of my philosophy and, and people are. I love this because it it gets to that core idea of it's not who you are inside and it's not who you say you are that defines you. It's how you act and how you behave. And that's what actually defines you. And you've actually stumbled on something that comes up a lot on this show, which is the best bit of advice that I ever got in television, which was from a guy called Ted Robinson. And people who listen to this show are probably sick of hearing this story, (laughs) but I love to share it every time because I thought it was a great piece of advice. He just said, remember, it's everyone's day at work. And so everybody will be affected by how 
you know, their day at work is affected by how you treat them during that day. And it's honestly one of the best bits of advice I ever got. Yeah, that's good advice. That's, that's, that's worth living by that because everybody's day it is. And, you know, everybody's day is different. Everybody's day starts different. They come with different baggage, with different happiness, with different joy or something that might have, you know, they might have dropped an egg when they opened their fridge, you know, then they thought, oh, no, this is my whole day. My whole day's ruined. <laughs> by the way, that happened to me yesterday. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, you've got, to, you've got to look at everybody individually and, and be respectful of their needs. And is that something that you have always had as part of your personality um were you raised you know with that sort of attitude around you when you were growing up yeah definitely my mum and dad it was important for us to respect everybody and and understand that everybody has different needs and to accommodate them and you know everybody's needs change too they're not always the same so to just to love and welcome people into your heart as much as you can. This is such a lovely way to start. We've jumped right in the end of the pool that I like to, you know, talk about, which is, you know, where kindness comes from and where respect for others comes from. And you've touched on something that I love also, which is that kindness to person one day might not be the kindness they do the next day because, you know, everybody's bringing something different to the table every day. And I think this is yeah, part of the problem that we run into more generally in our society is that we think there's a one-size-fits-all solution to problems, whereas every day there might be a different solution to the same problem because the circumstances have changed. So I love all this. So tell me a little bit about where you grew up, you know, paint that picture a little bit more for me, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I'm a, a proud Aboriginal woman. I'm Yankanjara Wirungu um, from the West coast of South Australia. So my early childhood was growing up in Sejuna and then we moved to Adelaide because dad went to um, university and was a, a police officer. And, and so we we, yeah, we moved to Adelaide and I grew up in Largs Bay, right on the beach. So it's just gorgeous there. So I'm basically a beach girl and, you know, I had a really good, really good life in um, Adelaide. I was really blessed, good friends, good family. And then I moved to Melbourne about 25 years ago. So yeah, I'm an old person. (laughs) So I've lived like (laughs) half a life in um, South Australia and half a life in Victoria, pretty much. Uh, and did you find yourself somewhere near the ocean in Victoria? And if not, do you miss the ocean? Oh, I miss the ocean terribly. Um, nowhere near. I've grown up in a leafy... Oh, Melbourne has been about leaves and trees, which I also love. So I, I had to resolve that um, and I'm happy with that. I love that I go out and see all the green leaves, but I do desperately miss the beach. And when I go back to Adelaide and Sejuna, I spend a lot of time down there loving it. What is it about the ocean? You know, I, I, I'm a person who loves water, so I'm, I'd love to know what your relationship with the water is and, and what is it in particular that you like. I think it just frees you of all your worries, you know, like you can walk along the beach and feel just like you are just part of this massive part of this, the world. It's just so big and you're so little, but, you know, but you just feel free. I feel really relieved when I'm down there of anything that's a concern. And, and when you're in the water and you're just floating, it's just so refreshing and just, just I just love it. 
Yeah, mm. the weight of the world, you know, is off your shoulders in a yeah. way. Also, you feel so connected to the world because you're in it. That's you know, right. It's so rare that unless you're, you know, I guess, you know, being buried <laughs> at the end of your life, it's very rare that you're actually, you know, necessarily like in the earth. You know, yeah. we're so often on the earth. But when That's we're right. in the water, I always feel like we're, you know, you're actually in the planet. You are. Which I think is really powerful thing. So what brought you to Melbourne? Why do you go from Adelaide to Melbourne? I actually came for love. So I came here for a boyfriend and things didn't work out and I was actually going to head back to Adelaide and then I met my husband now. So I stayed. Oh, that's good. I'm glad that <laughs> you didn't have to move home. No. You came for one love, you stayed for another love. Exactly. It's nice. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so tell me about, I mean, because people who know you will probably best know you for your work, you know, in sports journalism. And how did that journey start? Where where did the journey in into that world start for you? So it started on a show called Live and Kicking on Channel 7. And I dated a footballer at the time. And the thing was that they wanted to start a band of footballers, wives, girlfriends, and footballers. And they went around and asked all of the girlfriends and wives who likes to sing. And Nicole Krasiska and I had a real problem and still do with karaoke. So they essentially went, well, those two are never off the karaoke mic. I think they're your girls. So <laughs> we ended up doing an audition and before you knew it, we were on there. And, and that was just singing and just really having the time of our lives with footballers came on every week and, you know, they did cowboy songs and, you know, Elvis and or like a, a whole range of fun things. And then that transferred into the Margaret radio show asking me to to talk about football and I was like oh hang on a minute not sure this is going to work <laughs> so, so it, was, it was a quick dive into the deep end really and I just learned and I just had these amazing people who turned me into someone who could talk about football isn't that uh, so you did not see that coming it wasn't something no. that you set out to do it was no. something that you more fell into I completely fell into it like completely I never saw myself talking about football football was something that you know I loved but I didn't love love um as growing up because my dad was a professional runner so we were an athletics family and um that was that was our passion so if so i could you know i've always wanted to do radio as a kid i would you know have my dictaphone and talk on the on the radio you know i was talking to et and and um michael j fox and and michael jackson but i've i've had a, had talked to michael jackson and he can no longer be on my show so but i had this I just always wanted to talk and share people's stories. And so that's what I saw myself more doing. And then this thing with football happened and I saw that was a way to share people's stories through um, AFL. So that's really been the angle that I've gone more for, not the, you know, the stats and all of that. I'm not really that stat person. I don't remember all of those things. My brain doesn't have that capacity. I love the stories behind the game. It's it's the area of football that I am most interested in also. Anyone who's ever listened to my AFL adjacent, we call it an AFL adjacent football podcast because we rarely actually talk about things like stats and games and often we don't even mention any of the games that happen <laughs> the weekend. But it's the stories around the game that we find so fascinating. You know, yeah. the football itself is almost something that we keep up with so that we can understand the rest of the soap opera and yeah, that happens around football. So what stories were you most passionate about sharing what did you think wasn't out there that people needed to know I think it's the behind the scenes their family connection and more who makes them who they are and 
and um, and what they want to be and their drive and how they got to this place. I love those stories. I love what I love the most about AFL is that it's young people essentially living their dream. You know, they've worked so hard to make this happen. And I love the stories behind that. And I love the stories of, you know, what mum cooks them and, you know, and what drives them now, who their, who their best friend is that did this silly thing. And, you know, their best mate that comes along to the games and does this ridiculous thing before a game that gets them going, you know, just, I really enjoy that and the essence of the person themselves, not this person we all think they are. It's more about the essence of who they are as a person. And, and so I love this because it goes back to what you mentioned as your philosophy, which is this idea that, you know, it's about who they actually are rather than what it is, you know, that they do for a living. But do you think that we forget as football fans, as sports fans in general, that we judge these people so harshly for their actions on the sporting field that we forget that they're actually human beings? Definitely. We definitely forget that. We we can often leave empathy out of it. And so many times, you know, Will, you hear people say, oh, but they get paid all this money. We are allowed to say these things. Well, you know, you're not really. You're not allowed to talk to people like that because of the income that they get. That's not how it works. So that's disappointing to see as, as a football community that we hold that as an okay mark <clears throat> sorry that we hold that as a way in which we can treat people is based on how much they earn and that we own them there's that kind of I pay my membership so I can talk to them like that I don't believe that and I don't think that's okay for our football community to believe does football have a problem with you know, that aspect of it. I mean, we've obviously seen it spill over, you know, we, I mean, I, I was thinking we could probably talk about some other things before we, you know, dived headfirst <laughs> into racism, but I guess we've got there Let's go 12 there. minutes Here we are. the podcast <laughs> because are. it's the most prominent example of what we're talking about at the moment is the fact that people believe that they can, you know, pay their money and then, you know, yell out things that in any other forum would, you know, race, racist hate speech, you know. Yeah. So is, how big is that problem? In, in the game of AFL football at the moment, do you think? I, th I think it's a big problem. I think that we've hidden some of it for too long. And, you know, I know a lot of behind-the-scenes things that go on within the AFL of them working really hard to make this not be a problem within the AFL. It's it's It pains me to say that it is something that is going to take time because we've had leadership in our parliament and leadership within our football clubs, which allow this kind of behavior because um, of talking about how free speech is okay. Um, well, free speech shouldn't include hate and it shouldn't include things that, that, that hurt somebody to a point where they don't want to be a part of a game anymore and they don't want to be a part of a space um, and make them not want to go to work because essentially the AFL footballers are going to work and we forget that a lot. And I think, you know, in some ways I was talking to Tony Armstrong about this. It, it's most disappointing because it is an area of our society where, you know, you know, First Nations people, Indigenous Australians, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have all dominated the sport disproportionately to, you know, most other areas of society. This is an area where, you know, people have been seen at their best, allowed to be at their best and mm. still had to deal with this completely... Um, you know, irresponsible, completely inappropriate reaction in their work environment, as you say. Yeah, and I can't tell you the amount of times that I hear people say, and I've heard people say, um, 
really disgusting racist things about an Aboriginal footballer who might play for Hawthorne, but they'll barrack for, say, uh, Essendon, and then but their Aboriginal players are okay because they, they barrack for, you know, they play for Essendon. But I can talk about these other people because I don't even see them as humans. You know, they, they, they lose sight of that, and that's a massive problem um, within our AFL um, community. So... Yeah, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of work to do, and I think it stretches not just from within the AFL, but from the wider community and how um, our government sets things and how policies are put in place within their workplace, and how they are just as an individual person. Like, I mean, do you really want to talk to somebody like that? Is that who you want to be? Is that who you want your kids to see you as? And who, you, like, how do you lay your head down on a pillow at night and think, oh, good day's work? You know, I don't get that. Well, it comes to that thing that you've said again. Uh, it, this is great. I love when somebody's philosophy you know, is thematic through the things that we talk about because I think it's again that example of often you would talk to these people and they say, "Well, I'm not a racist. I'm just at the you know, football yelling out things." And it is that thing of going, "Yeah, well, that's who you think you are inside. Your vision of who you are isn't a racist, but what you're saying out loud is making you sound pretty racist, mate. <laughs> like, pretty racist. You might not think you're a racist, <laughs> but you're doing a pretty good interpretation of a racist. Yeah, and it's also those internal conversations you have. You know, like you constantly have to self-check them because if you're saying things internally within your head that you know aren't quite right." to say out loud, then you've got to reassess yourself as a person and and go through those things and work them out, have a conversation with someone you trust. Why am I thinking of these things? And a lot of it's got to do with that constant barrage of um, stereotypes that we are given through media and we are given through conversations we have with friends and family that you've got to start questioning what goes through your mind and that'll change what comes out of your mouth. Okay, so what happens in these situations is you you went on a TV show, you know, to sing a bit of karaoke, right? Yeah. You know, basically, <laughs> and much. then suddenly, fast forward to now, you know, you're involved, yeah, you know, constantly in these, you know, deep conversations around, you know, these quite, you know, incredibly difficult, you know, conversations, conversations that you know. Maybe not on this, you know, this is a pretty safe space, this podcast. Beautiful. You're probably not going to get a lot of hate mail from <laughs> anything you say on this podcast, but you suddenly have a voice in public. You know that there are going to be people who react to that voice in public. Was that something that came comfortably to you? Was that a journey that you had to go on where you were suddenly like, oh shit, people are going to ask me for my opinion on this. So I'm going to have to be prepared for the consequences of that. Like, how did you come to being able to speak about these things publicly? Well, my father promised me because he was a prominent Aboriginal man within the community. He did amazing things, changing laws for Aboriginal people, for land rights and, um, you know, he was the first Aboriginal police officer. He went to England to see the Queen's people to sort out Maralingaland. So he did a lot within this space. So I watched that as a child. and But he made me promise that when I do have a child that I spent my time building that child, um, ends up being a son, a beautiful son, Taj, into a strong human who can stand on their own and know who they are and have pride in themselves as an Aboriginal person and strength within themselves. Because the onslaught that we actually get as Aboriginal people when we do speak up, it is quite debilitating. And there are studies that are done that it actually takes years off our lives. So um, he wanted me to make sure that my family was strong and I've done that. And it was my son that actually said to me, it's time for you to speak up because 
he said to me, I will never let people treat me the way that you've allowed people to treat you. And I went, oh my goodness, <laughs> I've probably gone a few years over what I should have done. <laughs> so, oops. <laughs> so, so I was, you know, by the people that think they can say whatever they like, given an opportunity to speak up. And I've really taken that on board because I feel like I'm continuing my father's work and I take that with pride. And um, as an Aboriginal person, it's almost, it has to be like, you know, that it is a role that I play in life to make the next generation um, have a safer place and have a place where they can thrive and be who they want to be without this judgment and without ticking someone's box, you know, so that's my role and it always has been in life. And I was building up this space within the media. So I did have a voice that it would get to this point. And I think I've achieved that hopefully. Well, I think I agree that you have, and I'm, I'm very excited to have you here talking about these things, you know, for that reason. But I can imagine, as you said, you know that it's going to be a lightning rod. You know that, you know, some tough stuff is going to come your way. Are you okay at handling that? Like, does it get to you or have you, 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 you presented yourself in a way, prepared yourself in a way that you can have a bit of a thick skin to what's going to come your way? Oh, many racists before this moment have prepared me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I've been training for this for years. I've been training for this for years. I'm I'm game ready. But um, no, it's just I've watched how my dad handled things with grace to never raise his voice to to never have the anger that they want us to have in our hearts. So I don't carry their anger in my heart. I let it go in the moment that I speak to them. I try to educate them. Um, some people say, oh. I, if I say, please open your mind, they say, oh, closed-minded means, you know, we don't have the same opinion. It's one of their favorites. Um, so it's not actually what it means. You know, we should all walk around with an open mind and open heart, listening to all people of all cultures and of, of different backgrounds and, and standing in, in this um, country of ours or in the world. And so that's what it's all about. So I'm, I don't take their hate. I don't take any of it on. I I've got good friends, you know, that I can talk about if something does shake me. But generally, by the time I go to sleep, they're gone. So we, race is one thing. And then we get to the the other thing, particularly in the world that you're in. And, you know, mm. which is that you're a woman and, mm. you know, sport in particular, AFL football in particular, had been a very male dominated area. It is changing and I, mm. you know, changing in a beautiful way, not only in the AFLM, but obviously now this very successful AFLW competition, which has been you know, fant- I, the thing that I hate as a football fan is when they, there's this categorization of those things as if like the AFLM is for men and the AFLW is for women. They are both for men and women. And, you know, AFLM is supported, you know, by a lot of women and, you know, beautifully. And I'm, I'm very proud to see that AFLW is being supported by a lot of men. That's it's yeah. it, it is a good thing. It is a great time for I think, you know, women's voices emerging in our game, but it still is the emerging stage of that. It isn't the yeah. norm. So what has that been like, being a woman in a predominantly male world previously to that? Yeah, it's, it's, I've been felt really honoured to ha- hold this space as a woman. Um, it's had its moments, you know, I've had quite the sexist moments within my time. I do believe that if I ever wrote a book, Will, there'd be some people getting a lawyer quick smart, <laughs> <So> <laughs> lawyering up as we speak. Um, but, yeah, so it's... Um, 
yeah, it's it's certainly had its challenges. You know, like I've been put in my place many a time as a woman. I've had people that refuse to work with me in this space because I'm a woman. I've had people who've asked me if I'm here to do the weather. Um, you know, and try to stereotype me as a woman. So, you know, I, I just shake that off and I, it really, it's about them and who they are as a person. Um, I've had to kick down a lot of doors as an Aboriginal woman and I'm still kicking. And the main reason I'm kicking is because I want young people to be able to just go, Oh, oh that's easy. You know, and, and then I think, oh, am I making it look too easy? Should I make it look a bit harder <laughs> than what it actually is? <laughs> but, I mean, you know, we get, I want them to come into a space with confidence and, and know that, that there's a space there for me. Well, Shelley did it and, you know, she's created this space and and I want there to be more than just me doing this. And I know that there are some some girls, you know, we've got Bianca doing it with Yokai and, and I want to see more of that, not just one. We can't just have one of us here and there speckled around. Like, you know, let's make women the norm and Aboriginal women, you know, the norm as well. Yeah, that, I mean, obviously a theme that comes up a lot on this show is that, you know, you, you know, if you see it, you can be it. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, that means that somebody has to kick down the doors in the first place so some other mm. people can walk through the empty space where the door used to be. But yeah. who did you have a, as a role model? Who was it that you could see so that you could be what you are? And if no. there is no one... Yeah, which I imagine you know, <laughs> no your face is giving me the, there was no one. I, I wasn't. There was nobody. <laughs> so I'm very interested in that because I think how do you be it if you can't see it? Yeah. Um, I'm one of these people that just, just does something. Like I, I foolishly just jump in. Like, you know, someone will say, oh, can you do a keynote speech on something? I'll go, sure, I can do that. <laughs> and then I'll go walk away and go, okay, now I've got to, yeah, I've got to make that happen. I just do things and, I do, and I'm not afraid of failing. And um, I think that comes from watching my mum and dad do exactly that. Just go for everything that they could possibly go for. And if someone asks me to do something and I'll, I'll just have a crack. I, I, I think it comes from my childhood and upbringing in that aspect. Um, very, um, I don't know, it's almost like a, a fault button I've got. I'm not sure, Will, but it's, it's there. It's who I am as a person and I, um, I want to create – and I think it's part of me being a teacher as well, you know, like I constantly want to have kids know that they can do something so I'll show them how to do it. So I've just gone in – Eyes blindfolded, had a crack, it worked. So, yeah. So the, the lack of fear of failure is almost a superpower, I think, <laughs> rather than a fault button. I, mean, yeah, the, I used to have a little thing on my desk that said, you know, what would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? Yeah. And And you are just attempting regardless of knowing whether you will fail or not. So has there been setbacks along the way? Is there something that you did have a crack at that you – did fail at and if so how did you bounce back from that or or did you just have a hundred percent record of trying things and not failing Shelley is that what we're hearing I don't know I'm sure I failed <laughs> I just move on will I just move on no um I, I don't know I've, I've I've been very blessed you know I wanted to be a teacher um so I'm I'm a teacher I wanted to um 
you know, be a mum. I, I can tell you now, Will, I fail daily at things there in that department. Um, you know, and I, I talk to my son a lot about my failures and we go through that. But, you know, now I, I've, I'm venturing into the world of being on radio. So ABC have given me an opportunity to have a digital platform where I can train there to be on radio. So and I think that's going well. I think I had a really good director um, in Dan Warner years ago on Margrook and, and he basically sat me down every, after every single show, I would have to go and look at my show and analyze it and work out where I, I mucked up. And then, um, then we would come together just before the show and we would spend an hour going through my notes, going through his notes. And then I would have one thing to focus on that would make me better on the next week's show. And we did that for two years, you know, so I, I've adopted that into so much of my life um, in everything that I do. And, and if I do fail, I generally am really laughing really hard at what I've done. So I, I don't even really see it as a failure because there's always something to learn from it. And I think Dan instilled that in me um, over those years of just tirelessly looking at what was wrong with what I was doing <laughs> and, and, then, and then getting better. And just that one thing to focus on, you know, not, not being overwhelmed by a hundred things, but one thing and I would work on that for the week. And that, that helps me. I just laugh everything off, Will. It's just it's literally what gets me through. I like that. I mean, it feels, you know, like a good way to look at life, but also a good way to look at learning, which is this idea that, um, you know, sometimes I think people feel so desperate and particularly in this last year, which is, mm. you know, if people were going through a hard time already, it's only accentuated that for a lot of people. But also for a lot of people, they've had to go through a hard time. Yeah. You know, they weren't expecting, you know, it's knocked a whole bunch of people, you know, off their feet, I think. And yeah, yeah suddenly people are considering their entire lives and it seems a bit overwhelming. Whereas if you can just improve one thing at a time, work on yeah. one thing at a time, you can you know, improve your circumstance. It's a cool idea. So do you have a teaching philosophy? Like what is the, your attitude to what's the best way to educate, you know, people? Um, yeah, with teaching, I am creating a space where I'm allowing children to be their best version of themselves. So whatever that is, whatever they see themselves and as, a, as who they want to be when they're older or who they want to be that day or that week, but it's all about creating a space for them to to explore new things, to learn new things and be the best version of themselves pretty much. I, I love that. So I'm fascinated by education in general as a, and I, I think the, yeah, the good things about it and the failings that are inherent in it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the biggest ones that comes up a lot on this show is the idea that, yeah, we almost drain the love of learning out of a lot of kids. Yeah, my, I've got yeah, a son sitting in the next room like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the circumstance during, because you're Melbourne, so you had a big lockdown. Were you, you know, teaching during that time? Was he at home during that time? Were you combining those two things? What was your circumstance, re-education during the lockdown? So I was doing that. I was um, working with children on a computer with my son standing next to me or fish flopping on the ground, either one of those, just pick, pick your moment. Um, so that was really difficult as a teacher because it really tugged at your heartstrings. You were putting all this energy into other people's children that you love and then you had your own child standing next to you saying, I need help, and you couldn't help them. It was a really, really difficult time. So school for him, if it didn't work in that time where I was with others, would often have to go out of the boundaries of school if his teacher couldn't help help him was with somebody else and you know he's dyslexic and I'm dyslexic so um it, 
that that played a huge role and it was very overwhelming, very difficult time. And, yeah, not fun, Will, not fun at all. Well, as someone who's, you know, on the front line of that stuff, do you worry about the kind of long-term effect that this last year will have on kids? I mean, you know, of various ages, you know, people who were about to be introduced to socialisation, those who were important years of their development. You know, there's there's barely a year of those years that isn't an important year of your development. So for so many reasons, it doesn't matter if you're in your last year of school or your first year of school or anywhere in between. Um, Are you worried? Like are kids going to bounce back easily or is there going to be longer term things we have to watch out for from what we've been through? I think anxiety is going to be an issue that we're just going to have to really monitor in our children. I think with the last of the lockdown three that we just saw, we had children that really regressed right quickly back into that fear of is this going to be as long as it was last time? I can't do it. And it was an immediate like we got to the tough anxiety really quickly. It wasn't that long drawn out one that we had, hang on, is this ever going to end? It was bang, we're right back where we were. So that is going to be something that we need to deal with with our children and, and not dismiss it, you know, really make sure that we're listening to them. And if they need professional help, my advice would be to get it because it's something that um, it can impact their life as an adult and we just don't want that for them. If we give them the tools, the preventative tools, and or if we give them the tools to help them come down from that anxiety, it'll, it'll benefit them in their future years. Do you think that this has given parents a, uh, a bigger – has it given parents – an idea of just how hard teachers are working. I think so. I think it gave them a respect. I certainly know my Facebook page, um, Facebook page suggests that with the, oh my God, not this again. I can't do this. Where are the teachers? So yeah, I think that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. From Pretty much from my Facebook page as well is where I've got that impression, but I think it is true. What is, uh, I, I, so I'm, I am genuinely fascinated because so many of you know, the kids of today, obviously, even you know, the idea of asking them, what job do you want to do as an adult is such a ridiculous thing because chances are that the job that they may do, they'll probably do more than one job for a start. Exactly. And Hopefully. Secondly, and many of those jobs probably don't even exist yet, haven't been invented yet. So it's not like even when I went through school where it was basically like, well, you can be a doctor or a lawyer or a mechanic or a a journalist. That's what I I studied. You know, there was really, here's your basic options. Nurse, teacher, you know, these are the jobs. Those old stereotypical jobs. (laughs) But that probably wasn't even true then. It is certainly not true now. So um, you told me a little bit about your teaching philosophy. Where do you think that the actual system itself what are the what are the flaws in the system what if we had to address something if you had a magic wand if i came to you yeah shelly and i said i've got a magic wand i can reform education in this country but you need to tell me what the the main thing it is that i need to concentrate on what would that be well firstly luckily i'm a permanent teacher and they can't fire me no just kidding (laughs) (laughs) i'm kidding i'm kidding it's not like that um it's (laughs) Well, if it's not like in media where you're too frightened to say something because you might lose your job. <laughs> very different, very different. It's very safe. I would say that we need to – we talk about it a lot and we say that we do it with this individualised teaching for kids and that we allow them to be their own individual, but we don't really. The system is still too in high school especially where there's a teacher up the front and it's get out this 
this textbook that has to go like this is just holding so many children back you know and that's what holds my son back we we take away that creativity from them you know we don't allow them to express themselves and you know if somebody does then they're being mischievous you know that they've got to pull the line and they can't you know primary school does a good job of that and then they go into this whole completely different world in high school where it's taken away that that freedom to learn and that freedom to be a part of what they want to learn and it's just about page 92 today and we're going to do page 92 and if you can't do page 92 then you're probably going to have to get a tutor or you know like or I can help you with that but I've got five people to help you with and I didn't get to you but now we're on page 93 so you know that that's a problem within our education system and it doesn't happen in all schools I do know that there are some really some fantastic schools that are leading the way in making sure that children learn individually into what they want to learn and and also what's going to benefit them as a, as an adult but there's too much of that still this 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 textbook stuff and and not going to individual stuff and letting their creative mind we 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 push that down too much uh, what what's the levels of inequality in the education system uh, uh, it's actually not too bad like i've worked at there are definitely more women teachers, but I find that we're getting more men throughout the years. You know, like my space is very much filled quite equally with men and women in the school that I'm at. Um, so it's quite high. Probably the difference is the leadership positions. Um, they can often be taken by men and um, that that's probably a space that they're working on and, and they're working on successfully. I've never really felt in education that me being Aboriginal or um, me being a woman has been a huge problem. Like I I find that education does a good job of all of this sort of thing. So when I step out of that world that I'm like, wow, what is going on out here? <laughs> we need to tidy up some stuff out here. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, what, what do you think uh, in, in – so that's the infrastructure. Yeah. What do you think in the actual curriculum? Is there good education around those things? Are we telling kids better lessons about, you know, what women can do and achieve in our society? Are we telling, you know, uh, better stories about, you know, the First Nations people of Australia? Are, are we being educated about these things? Yeah, we're doing better at it. There's still a way to go. And I, I would say there's a massive surge at the moment in this space of telling um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories and also stories about women. That is definitely Definitely a, a huge, huge push at the moment. There's a lot of um, working groups that are going on. The education department is doing a lot of work within pushing that out into teachers. Our biggest problem is that teachers aren't confident because they didn't learn it at school. So they're not confident in who they are as a as a a person because they don't understand a lot of it themselves because they don't know it. So it's important for teachers to self-educate themselves and find as many books as they possibly can, watch movies, you know, go to community events with Aboriginal people um, and talk to Aboriginal people as people, not just something that you can get from because I need to do something today because I've got to tick a little box and, and make sure I've done this Aboriginal thing. But make Aboriginal people a part of your life if they're not. Okay, so that's very interesting to me because I think that there is an element definitely of, you know, when people are talking about, you know, how educated they are or how many, you know, Aboriginal people they know or whatever, it does seem to be a transactional relationship a lot yeah. of the time. Like, look at me, I've gone away and learnt this thing. It feels like these it. people and now look at me, I've got my badge. I've got my First Nations badge. And I know everything. I understand a few stories, <laughs> exactly. Um 
And look, you know, I, I would be the first to put my hand up also to, you know, say that um, for a lot of my life, you know, I would certainly acknowledge that I hadn't been educated properly about this, but had not made the connection that, you know what, there's a lot of information available, mate. You could probably go and just find out yeah. these things yourself. <laughs> probably <laughs> probably time for you to stop complaining that you didn't learn at a school and just yeah. like Google, Google some shit and read some books and, right. you know learn about a little bit yourself so yeah. uh, it is something that we encourage a lot on this show is you know the idea of getting out there and not burdening those who already have a lot on their plate to have to provide that information for yeah, you much exactly. of it is ready readily available and you don't have to call Shelley to find out but, <laughs> but also of course there is a, a great importance in having you know great communicators yeah. you know in these areas and this is a role that you know some yeah, partly you've stumbled into, but partly you've embraced. You know, when you've found yourself there, um, yeah. you know you're involved with an incredible group of women uh, in the Outer Sanctum, which is a brilliant podcast that I love and have talked about many times. My love for that group of women. How did how did that happen? How did you find yourself with those women and talk about talk about that relationship a little for a moment? Well, firstly, I think they all wet their, their pants a little bit when you said AFLM a lot. So that was really great. So they'll all be squealing <laughs> at that and, and pleased that we're talking about them. It was just through the football community and just meeting them. And, and they actually called me on to interview me um, for my work on Mangrog. And I walked into Lucy's house where they did it at that time in their lounge room. And, and Eddie McGuire had just dropped one of his um, bombs and I'm sorry, two days later bombs. And then he, um, we had to talk about racism. So it was, that was where we were at, where we were going to talk about the work that I'd done, but we had gone to racism and they were devastated. So devastated. We'll get you back on. We'll get you back on. We'll just talk about the work you're doing. And then there was another case of racism, literally the day before I was supposed to go. And they're like, this is getting ridiculous. Like we get you on and we promise. And I said, it's okay. They've got the calendars out and they're just matching it up. My calendar, their calendar. So then I've got something to talk about kind of thing. And we sort of made it a bit of a joke, but we formed a really good friendship. And um, then they said, would you, we are expanding our, our, our group to add a few more names. Would you like to be a part of it? And I jumped at it because they, they are, they're really beautiful women who, um, you know, we, we've got all different mindsets about different things and we, we challenge each other every day and we're not afraid to say, eh, not so much Shelley or, you know, <laughs> or yeah, you're right. You know, we're very supportive as well. So that's, what's beautiful about them. They challenge me and they support me. That is, I think you've summed up something that I love so much about listening to that show is that there is, you know, I mean, in the male dominated football chat world, there's certainly you know, people who challenge each other, but yeah. there is no sense of wanting to improve anybody. You know, a lot oh, of the time, it's, it's mostly just like my opinion's better than your opinion and you're an idiot for having your opinion. Yeah. Whereas very much what you're talking about is the idea of constructive challenging of ideas, which yeah. is, I think this, here's a different perspective. Maybe you haven't looked at it this direction. Oh yeah. Okay. Now mm. that I look at it from that direction, you know, I do see this point, but I'm going to counter it by saying, I do think, what about this? And then the other person going, oh yeah, oh, now that I see that and that form of mm engagement is something that we see so rarely in our media these days. You know, we live in a world where really we love this idea of getting somebody from the extreme right to debate someone from the extreme left. They're never going to agree with each other. They're never going to change each other's mind. You know, we're just going to watch them yell at each other for entertainment and, and achieve nothing yes. at the end of it. Come exactly. back again next week when we'll achieve nothing again. Whereas yeah. what I love about 
what the outer sanctum show and that group of people have been able to do is not just challenge my ideas as a listener and you know part of the reason that i you know am comfortable saying aflm and talking about these things is because i'd never really heard anybody explain to me why that was important until you know you have a show like that that explains to you why it's important and people will challenge each other around that so yeah it's a really great way of communicating i think it's one of the great highlights of the show is exactly what you've summed up Oh, beautiful. Kate Sears. That's not a question, by the way. Just a statement. That's a lovely compliment. (laughs) Well, Kate Sears, the brains behind AFLM, she's she's got away with words. So she's really, we've embraced it. And like as soon as, like she said it, we were like, yeah, why is there no M after that? (laughs) So you're right. The the challenge and and the love and the support is just what makes them so beautiful. So you mentioned, um, you know, a former workmate of mine uh, and, uh, you know, a few scandals that he's involved himself in. And he's been in the news recently when he had to resign as president of the Collingwood Football Club after a very long time. And, you know, it would have been, I know, having known him, and uh, that it would have been as big a heartbreak Apart oh. from, you know, you know, sickness in his family, you know, but there was a, a timeline, a track record and, you know, something that needed to be a- accounted for. And I think finally he partly realized that, you know, he yeah. was the person who needed to be accountable. And so how did you view what happened at the Collingwood Football Club? For people who aren't huge AFL fans, we're talking about, you know, you know arguably the biggest football brand in the country, certainly in iconic you know, stakes and, you know, a big charismatic president, you know, who for good or for ill, you know, dominated, you know, headlines and news and, and, you know, a report into that club that said that there were systematic failures around race and racism. And, you know, and so then, um, you know, his resignation was part of the accountability process there. But what's your, what's your external, what's your observation of what happened and what needs to happen? Well, I think you've, um, Eddie had have just come out and said, "Wow, this report is 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 heartbreaking. I've got a lot. I've got a lot. Collingwood have got a lot to learn. Yes, a lot of this is history, and um, you know, with these we've been working really hard in this space, and we know we've got more to do. I, I don't think we'd be where we are, you know. And 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 knowing Eddie too, he he will be absolutely devastated with the situation that he's found himself in." And I think a lot of it has to do with that he doesn't really understand what systemic racism is. And I say that only in the way that his response was, that he doesn't quite get it. Um, and, and you know, like maybe that's something in time he'll learn and he might be able to put those two things together and understand that that's where that, that moment was the breaking moment or, and the long history had to do with it as well. And not just his history, but other people's history that has been at the Collingwood Football Club. But I think as a, as a country, not just as a football community, we can take from this report and we can look at it. And I know that other AFL clubs are using that report and they are actually assessing within their own, um, within their own clubs. But what we can do as a society is we can take that, that, that that pointing that we're doing at Collingwood because it's not just happening at Collingwood. <laughs> no, it's just and, happening at Collingwood, Charlie. This is not a problem anywhere else in society. Certainly not in any other teams in the AFL. It is a one-off. Just a one-off. If you think that, then you need to just have a little reassess. Just sit down for a moment and have a cup of tea. But it's just you know, have a little reflection. So what we need to do now is we need to look at that report individually and say, how can I make this space that I live in better from reading this report, how, let me let me look at the things that they've looked at, 
what can I do within my workspace that I have the power to do within my community and within my, within my family? And I think that, I mean, their bravery in doing the report because it was an independent report, knowing that this was what they were going to find, because, I mean, there's no secret. I mean, none of the report was a secret to me, so I don't understand. There was no shock value in it. Um, but, yeah, if we can learn from that and put it into – our world, I think that's where we need to go. And and Collingwood, come back in a year or so. Let's see what you've done. But I do know that you know Debbie Lovett and Jody Sizer have been working hard in that space for the last five years. And remarkable things have changed. And that was in the report too that there have been some substantial changes. But it was I think it, it really was his reaction, and I think that lack of understanding of systemic racism. Yeah, there's. I mean, there are things in it, as you said, that everybody can learn from mm. and I think that we, we have to understand that like I mean I'm in my industry you know one of the things that I've been acutely aware of you know particularly comedians with each other will say the cruelest things to each other it's yeah. you know we're you oh, know, I'm pretty it's like, bad too <laughs> yeah and it's like I mean I imagine there is a you know excuse the you know pun like a, a black humor to being oh. like a, a you know a detective who covers murders you know that that idea of you know you're yeah. joking about very dark things you know I imagine people who are disadvantaged in society have often used humor as a way of oh, yeah. you know yeah, we can say this. Like, yeah, well, you look you over your shoulder it. to make sure you're in yeah. the room alone. But yeah, we do. Right. <laughs> and comedians do also. And sometimes it's in good spirits. Mm. But I must admit there has been a few times in the last couple of years, and not just around race, by the way, you know, it might be around sexuality or whatever, where I've just had a word with somebody to just say, hey, is this cool with you? Like, are oh. you like... Like, is, if this is all fun, like, if this is genuinely all fun, like, it feels like it's fun, I don't want to be, you know, the person who's, you know, making you feel uncomfortable. But is this cool with you? Because I look at what happened to Heredia Lumumba and, you know, yeah. one of the arguments that's been used, you know, is that, oh, look, he said that his, his nickname was this and, mm. you know, he called himself this. And, you know, acutely aware of this idea that you can be in an environment where, like the horrible things happening to you, but you understand it would even be even more horrible if you said anything about that thing. Yeah. yeah are you comfortable with that thing? Yeah. So um, how much of do you think, uh, you know, this culture has been constantly people, you know, being asked to fit in in a world that is not theirs, to be cool oh, with yeah. this stuff? Yeah, yeah. the responsibility is on the victim to be the, the person who's okay with it. Yeah, well, that's pretty much been my whole life, you know. I've heard throughout my whole life, but you're not really Aboriginal. You're not like the other Aboriginal people. And then they'll go and say something revolting. And it's like, yeah. hang, on, hang on a minute. Last time I checked, I really was Aboriginal. Mm. <laughs> you know, so just because, you know, of whatever stereotype they have in their head about Aboriginal people, they expect me to then follow suit to whatever they feel is okay to say about me. And it takes, and there are just different times in your life where you are comfortable as a, a person in a minority group to speak up about it. So there's a lot of, especially in your younger years or depending on the situation you're in, where you might not feel comfortable. And that, that thing that you referenced about Heretia um, with the record that people are saying, but look here, it is in print. One, we also know that those records are written by other people. But two, if you look at the top, his name is Harry O'Brien on that. It's not his name. So there are two situations in there that aren't who he is as a person. But so, I mean, and people use that. People 
churn those things out as a look, see, see, I told you that makes everything okay. And I can go back to being comfortable with who I am as this, as this person and everything's okay and beautiful in the world again. But it's so normal for people to, um, like, you know, just talking in my space of Aboriginal people, like people call us names and then they walk away. And sometimes kids will say those things again. They'll even call themselves or, or they'll then make fun of someone else and use that name. And it's about that, that fitting in and innately as humans, it's in our brain. It's how we are from right back to the caveman era of wanting to fit in. It doesn't make it right. And then they can come back later in life and go, I'm really ashamed of that time when I did that just to fit in or I didn't have the strength to stand up and say something because there wasn't that support system. So you can't blame a young person or a child when the adults around aren't doing the right thing and haven't supported them within that system. And that's where we find Heretia was in that. And that's what it means about systematic Racism, yes, right? Exactly. The system isn't in pro. In, it, like this is. It doesn't have to be about the incident. It yeah. can often be about the fact that these things were enabled to, like, it, it enabled because there was no way for them to be addressed or stop in That's any right. way that would have, you know, not caused much more trouble than it was. But also, what you said at the start of this show, which is. You know, like, I mean, in this way, it's very demonstrable because he literally had a different name. Mm. But someone's allowed to be a different person at 25 than they are at 35 oh, or they are at 45. I hope or, so. You know, or from day to day. You mm-hmm. know, the fact that even if he was more comfortable with it back then, I'm not saying he was, by the way, but I mean, let's just explore that hypothetical thought. It doesn't invalidate the idea that. He, he can he can learn more, learn more about you know who he is, his story, about what these words actually mean, the cultural impact of these words, the broader context of these yeah. words, and then suddenly have a very different opinion about what was happening at the time yeah. to what he did at yeah, the that, time. I mean, those things can also be true. Those things can also be true, not for Heretia, for many people, but it goes back to that whole the other people in the room who were supposed to be protecting him should have known. And they should have stepped forward and they should have said what you said, Will. Is this okay with you? Or everyone, actually, this isn't okay with me. I need you to stop this. This isn't okay. You know, I work with kids and, and I've stood in a place where a, a child that I'm looking after has been racially vilified to my face with a child standing there. And the, the kid's head drops down, you know, like because they don't know what to say. But then I show that, that child this is how you respond to this. And then I, you know, talk to the the child that has said something to them and then educate them about that word and what it means. And immediately that child's like, oh, sorry, I actually didn't even realize that that meant that. And sometimes they genuinely don't understand it because it can be something they hear and is normalized for them. But all I'm doing in that moment is I'm showing this child next to me that this isn't okay to let people talk to you because, and then they respond differently the very next time. And that didn't happen for him. Oh, man, it's a very disappointing situation, but I hope that, you know, out of these sort of times, you know, we lead to better times. I hope that what you're saying about, you know, the other clubs really having a decent look at how, how would we look, how would I look fronting a press conference if we did a similar report into our club? Let's, let's address those issues before, you know, that is actually the situation. Can we speak more broadly about, Australia's relationship to its First Nations people and, and you know, what your thoughts around that are? Like, I mean, how do you feel as, 
you know, an Aboriginal Australian, you know, to about the way that Aboriginal Australians are, you know, respected, you know, looked, uh, you know, in our society in a broader sense. Yeah. You know, in the idea of Australia, I guess. I think Australia um, embracing Aboriginal history and culture as their own just it's still not quite there, you know. Like, you know, we still we're trying really hard in a lot of areas. Um, you know, we're still shaking off that whole thing. The government did a fantastic job of, of convincing everyone that Aboriginal people just lived up in the Northern Territory. So our tourists come and they rush up to see the real Aboriginal people, where Australia is full of beautiful Aboriginal pe- um, people and of different, you know, um, countries and tribes and tribal groups and language groups, but they're not recognised. And, and now that's really disappointing. And we're doing better at it, though, you know, and, and it's coming from education within schools and for children to understand. And so many times I'll hear of children teaching their grandparents and, and their grandparents, like I said before, just not knowing. But we've got a long way to go. I don't feel fully embraced. I mean, let's face it, Will. I don't live in a house in Brighton from the money I've made in media. You know, I'm, you know, I'm yet, here. I'm not Shelley. yet. yet lo- love, love your work, Will. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm still seen as somebody that only works at NITV because that's where Aboriginal people belong. You know, that was only told to me last year by media people. Um, and there's no... Like people don't see us as being in mainstream media because they've got us in a little pocket still, in a little place where it's safe to keep us. And, and we're still helping those Aboriginal people. But, you know, I can't take those next steps into mainstream media because it's still the, the vision of people. And I'm damn good at what I do, Will. <laughs> I don't think anybody who's listened this far into the podcast has any doubts about that, Shelley. It's fine. We're we're still not provided the opportunity. So I guess what I'm saying to your listeners is if you can provide opportunity for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, still do that because that's not something that happens to us still naturally. And also, I mean, it goes to this broader issue. And I mean, we've we've distanced ourselves a little bit by the time people hear this from, you know, some conversations we had around January 26th. Mm. uh, But one of the things that frustrates me the most when we have that conversation is this idea, this argument that you get put forth a guy, well, it's not going to change anything about Indigenous life expectancy or it's not going to blah, 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 as if it's only of value to Indigenous Australians that we change the day, as if it's only, you know, Aboriginal Australians who care about this. Whereas, like, I think it's got to be this broader conversation about, no, 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 I care. And a lot of people that I know care. And a lot of people that I know, you know, would think this was a better country if we had a better understanding of literally what happened and if we've, like, actually, you know, done something really fucking serious to, you know, deal with the genuine hurt that's been caused. I mean, this is, you know, we've got our report. Yeah, Mm -hmm. this is our systematic racism report. We We know what the findings are. We have to look at what we're doing to actually to, to change that and so the idea of and the, I just it reminds me when you say of NITV or or Mangrook even to a certain extent which was this mm. idea of yes well that's the that's the Aboriginal football show but we don't need to have Aboriginal people as part of our coverage on you know the rest of the the football shows I, I think that is changing also which is mm. good but you know it could change 
yeah, quicker than it's changing. Yeah, definitely it could change quicker than it is, and not just because I'm looking for a job, but um, <laughs> because... I mean, good time, though. I mean, it'd be a good time if it did change. <laughs> Great time. But it, it is, and I know um, that I'm making these changes for the next generation. I, I can feel it, and I know it, and um, I'm good with that. Um, but it's it's difficult to watch because like when pe- people would come into Marnbrook they would literally come in and we would know that the the AFLW players or the women that came through that it was like a bit of a joke that they were doing their apprenticeship there we would give them all the skills we would train them up and then we knew that they were going to be on channel 7 um the following week so you know and we watched girl after girl after girl do that and it, and it was like i've been doing this now for like 10 years and they can't see me you know, so that's that that has its heartbreak in it, but at the same time, I just keep slogging along, Will. <laughs> I love it. Uh, okay, uh, Shelley, I'm aware that we started a little late, so I'm, I'm conscious of time, but I have some standard questions that I ask everybody who comes on the show. So if you don't mind, I might jump into that. What do you think happens when we die? I think that we um, meet our loved ones and that we go to the dream time, to heaven, whatever you want to call it and that they're waiting for us and that we reconnect with them. And do you find that a comforting idea? I do find it a comforting idea. I've seen um, spirits for a long time as a child, and my son does, and um, we see them regularly, so we know that in our hearts that this is true, and it's very comforting. When you say you see them, what does, if you don't mind telling me, what does that mean? Well, they, they come and visit us. You know, like my dad walked my son to school on his first day um, on the opposite side of the road. He could see him and he's read stories to him and they have a very strong relationship even though my dad's been gone for 20 years. Um, as a child, I would see my grandmother um, and then I got I, I must have got very frightened one day and I, I remember the day I stopped seeing um, loved ones and I remember the conversation that I had to, to stop it. And um, so now I smell them. So I smell my dad a lot. He's, by the way, he's taken smoking back up, dirty dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what would you like people to remember of you when you die? Um, that I'm trying to make this world a better place for the next generation and that I loved while I was here. Leave it better than you find it. Also, she died the oldest woman in the world. That too. In, in old, wrinkly old prune with her Botox trying to hold everything up. <laughs> uh, when you're at your best, uh, describe to me what that moment is. I just am elatedly happy. So when I'm happy within and I could feel that joy in my body, um, that's that's when I'm at my best because I give more to people and um, I give more to myself and it just feels good. And when you're the least you that you are, what, what, what does that look like? That's probably me ignoring emails and um, sitting on a couch <laughs> watching um, TV. <laughs> Uh, what's the best piece of advice that anybody ever gave you? Um, the, pe- the people you see on the way up are the people you'll see on the way down. That was my makeup artist, Sue. She would say that to me every show and she would say, treat people the way you want to be treated. And it just continued that conversation from my childhood to my adulthood. What's the worst piece of advice that you've ever been given? What's a piece of, what, what did somebody tell you that you could do or couldn't do or that was, you just think is absolutely wrong? Wrong. 
I was going to say eat that, it tastes good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but wrong. I'm, I'm, I haven't been very wrong. I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd, Will. I, don't, I didn't really break the rules going along the way. Um, I didn't do anything wrong such. I probably mistreated um, maybe a boyfriend in my younger years that I could have done better by. It's not much of a rap sheet, is it, Shelley? Not much, not much actual dirt there. Is it? But yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd. But yeah, probably the worst advice I had was eat that, it tastes great. What about um, the world itself? When you look out the window, you, I mean, you, you have a son, you know, he's, like you said, you want to leave things better for the next generation. As a world, are we in a position to leave things better for the next generation? Do you feel optimistic that that is the case? I do. I I feel there are a generation of people that are holding us in a place at the moment where we don't need to be. And I feel the next generation's not even this, this like our generation and the the ones following are ready to just say, Hey, that's not the way it's going to be. So I feel like we're not far from that. And this generation that are holding us in this holding space, it feels like at the moment, will it'll be over soon because they'll die. Right. Kill or boomers is what Kill I mean. <laughs> no, I think I do look out at this. It is a little bit, but it, I do look out at this world and think, you know, this, we're going to be right. Like I have to have that hope because if you don't, then you're just going to sit on the couch and ignore emails all the time. Well, I can't do that for much longer. People get angry. Uh- you mentioned, uh, you know, the idea that having, you know, often to defend who you are can take years off your life as, a, you know, Aboriginal person in this country. One of the things that Briggs was quick to point out when we spoke, you know, just after the pandemic had started was the fact that the warnings were for, you know, if you're over the age of 70, don't go out of the house. If you're an Indigenous Australian, you're over the age of 50, don't go out of the house. You know, this was yeah. the disparity that we're seeing, you know, in our society between life expectancy. Is it something that you think about yourself you know this idea that you know the the person you are born you know has a more quickly ticking clock than you know the rest of society it is because my dad passed away at the age of 50 and when he passed away that was the expected age of an aboriginal man we've got it up to the age of 68 at the moment and we are closing the gap as they say um but we've got work to do within that space and a lot of it um look it's on my mind constantly. I mean, I'm, you know, next year I'll be 50. So those warnings of 50 and asthma for Aboriginal people are for me, you know? So yeah, it's hard not to ignore them. I, I exercise with the thought of not dying young, literally. <laughs> That's why I exercise. <laughs> it's just, it's there. You know, I talked to my son about it, you know, like we have to be extra careful. Our bodies haven't evolved enough yet. This is a fact for us. We need to make sure that we live to be old people. We've got shit to do. Uh, I don't think it's the responsibility of uh, anyone to answer this question. So feel free not to, if you don't want to, but, um, but at the same time, I often, get requests from people saying how how can we help how can we do better and i think that most of the time when i get these you know questions from people they are well-intentioned and good-hearted you know they are from people who listen to this show and they hear these stories and they see that there are these discrepancies in our society and these inequalities in our society and they genuinely want to do something to you know make things better yeah um 
Do you have any advice? Yeah. You know, in that? I'm grateful for those people that want to help and I'm grateful for those people that want to do better. You know, without those allies, you know, we would just be stuck where we've been stuck, you know. If we've got people who are hearing our voice and then sharing our voice, this is going to make the world a better place for everybody. And so it's about self-education, you know, checking the stereotypes in your head and, and you know, finding out why they're in there and then, de- you know, getting rid of them and, Part of that is by meeting people within the community, you know, going to community community events when we can again with COVID and, you know, if there's a festival going on or a market, Aboriginal market, head on to it, you know, and talk to people within the community. Find books, watch movies, all of those things, you know, there's so much that we can be doing. And volunteer, you know, I used to volunteer to teach adults to read. Um, so all those things, you're connecting with community. That's what, that's what chain, chain, hang on. That's what makes change. So how did you go in the lockdown period with the lack of access to community? I mean, Melbourne had a very long lockdown. Um, You know, how was it for you during that time? I was really fortunate, actually. I worked on the ABC education project of sharing Uncle Archie Roach's story and the elders from the stolen generation. So that took up a major part of that. So I was connecting with elders within the community daily. I was getting to talk to Uncle Archie, you know, once a week. And and I had my, my girlfriends through Culture is Life and Belinda Duarte and Tara Brown, where we talked all the time. Like we were talking to midnight most days and working on this project. As exhausting as the project was, it's what saved us. And we talk about that quite a bit. And when we came out of that first lockdown, we were like high-fiving each other, cheering each other. And we looked at each other and we stopped and looked at each other and said, we couldn't have done this if it wasn't for each other. And this project of sharing Uncle's story. Well, speaking of projects, let's plug what we can plug in your world and then I'll ask the final two questions. Ah, so what, what do people need to know about Shelley? All right. So you can catch me on the Outer Sanctum podcast. Thank you for talking about them. And that that's usually released on a Wednesday on all of your places you get your podcast. That's a lot of fun. And I'm doing the ABC digital show. So that is 4 o'clock to 6.30 on either Channel 25 of your TV or the ABC Listen app. And hopefully, with any luck, fingers crossed, we'll get the colour of your jumper up again where I talk about footy. So we'll see how we go. Okay, two final questions. One is, if I had a magic wand and I could give you any skill in the world, you don't have to Mm -hmm. learn how to do it. You just immediately have this skill and you're good at it, what would that skill be? What would it be? I don't know. Um, maybe remembering what I read. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like long-term locked in, you know, because I can often read something because I've got all sorts of, you know, with the dyslexia. It'd be nice to just be able to read something with ease. I think that would actually be a really good skill to have, mm. like the, you know, the retention of the information yeah. that you take in. I, I feel like I feel like I read a lot and only some of it sticks. <laughs> and, and, like the, <laughs> and I don't have dyslexia as <laughs> an excuse. I think that would just be joyful because everything I do, it takes twice as long because I've got to go over it so many times, you know. Probably take that element out of my life. It'll save me hours. And uh, final question, I have a time machine. I can take you to any point in the future, any point in the past. You can just go and visit somewhere you can interact with yourself you can change something about your life you can give yourself some advice it, it does not matter you can do whatever you would like with this time machine first question do you go forward or backwards i go backwards and where do you go the week before my dad passed away we went on a fishing trip and we were fishing for a whole week i would be on that boat with him fishing it's a great answer 
Thank you so much for doing this show today. It's been a real pleasure. We had a few technical hiccups at the start, but that's the world of podcasting sure online these days. But we absolutely got there and I've loved this. Thank you so much for doing oh, it. Oh, thank you so much for your time and hearing my story. I've loved it. We're done. We're done. We're done. 